Hello and welcome to Playback Daily. It's Wednesday, the 28th of February. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up on the show. A so Bailey's like Swiss roll. So you add a drop of Bailey's to it. Right, okay, yeah. Mix it up with the fresh cream and yeah. a little bit of kiwi on top. And you couldn't sell enough. Sounds really nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. That's yeah. really makes me hungry now, actually. But there's probably a little bit more, I would like to think maybe there's a bit more satire and irony when it comes to country music in this, because they must know themselves yeah. that the entire genre is built on breakups, pickup trucks and dead dogs. Yeah. The project is all about um, the cows eating the grass, so all the heavy grass goes away and then the next summer all the flowers can come in and take over there and make the landscape look beautiful. On Morning Ireland today, RTE Western correspondent Pat McGrath reported from Galway City where a herd of Dexter cows are grazing in Renmore. It's part of an innovative project to increase biodiversity. On a coastal headland on the eastern edge of Galway, a Dexter herd is settling in for a city break. Since the animals' arrival here in recent days, they've been getting plenty of attention from walkers, joggers and others taking their daily exercise on the pathways around the meadow. The area in Renmore already forms part of the city pollinator plan. That initiative really is to look at improving our green spaces and um, for pollinators, removing fertilisers and um, pesticides, herbicides um, from our green spaces. However, this site is actually a very rich soil type. So what happens here is that the grasses love it and they grow very, very well. Um, but what happens then, because they grow so tall and heavy, they um, they actually outcompete the native flora. So there is a seed bank, we call the seeds are here. The, the native flora is here, but it's not being given a chance to really emerge. The cows have one job here, as the City Council's biodiversity officer, Paula Kearney, explains. What they do is they graze down the grass and also the, any dead grass that might be what we call thatch um, over the sward. So this is a grassed area we call a sward. So by grazing that down then they give opportunity and because they're, they're, they're small hooves, they're light, lighter animals than the continental breeds, they score the ground gently and that also provides space then for seeds to emerge for our native flora. So that's really um, the main purpose really of grazing them. And the key part of that as well is that they're grazed only over the autumn winter months. They'll come off in early spring so giving those seeds as much as chances um, possible so we hope that there will be a, a flourish of, um, of wild flora, native flora here during the summer months. So what, are the, what are the flowers good for? Local schools, community groups and voluntary organisations have all signed up to take part in the Boulia Bow project. Children from third class in Skull Katrina in Renmore were among the first to visit the new arrivals. The nine and ten year old pupils have been learning about the characteristics of the Dexter breed and the role they can play in both biodiversity and educating city residents about rural life. The project is all about um, the cows eating the grass, so all the heavy grass goes away, and then the next summer all the flowers can come in and take over there and make the landscape look beautiful. Well, they're bad and good for the environment, because when they eat grass, and they fart, it's not good for the environment. But when they eat grass, it's good for the environment because then after flowers can grow. We're going to be looking after the cows and like making sure that there's no rubbish going in there so they don't eat any rubbish and make sure they're well to look after. They seem very calm, don't they? Yeah, they're very calm right now. I thought they'd be more electric, you know? Whenever they want to grab long grass, short grass, they wrap their tongue around the grass so they can pull up the grass. Hopefully the flowers grow and 
Hopefully they just have a good time. The project is being supported by scientists from the University of Galway along with officials from Chagask who will be involved in analysing the monitoring reports from here over the coming weeks. Ivan Kelly, a farm systems specialist with the agency, says the project has the potential to deliver on several fronts. I suppose there's a few things going on here. So number one, I suppose the protection of the rare breeds. These are rare breeds such as Dextra and many more that are you know, under threat of extinction if they're not minded and protected. So that, that um, by um, promoting then this type of uh, sustainable farming practice um, and as you mentioned, outreach, getting those messages out to the public. We have the schools here today. And then to see grazing and to see cattle and to see farming as part of the picture to improve biodiversity and um, have a big part to play in the protection of the environment here in Galway. Ivan Kelly of Chagask ending Pat McGrath's report on Morning Ireland. Well, Claire Byrne reminded us that earlier this month, the Central Statistics Office removed the Swiss roll from the list of products in the shopping basket of goods that it uses to monitor inflation. So Adam McGuire, RTE reporter, and Graeme Herterich, author of Bake and owner of The Bakery in Rialto in Dublin, were on a mission to save our Swiss roll. So Adam... This came up in our chat about the CSO, yeah. which should have been a very dry and boring conversation, <laughs> let's face it. But it turned into Save Our Swiss Roll. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when the, the, the classic cake like the Swiss Roll is in peril, you have, to, you have to do something about it. You can't sit on the fence on this one. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you 100%. And, and this is, yeah, just, just for context, so, so the, the central statistics, after we talk about the inflation figures, a lot of consumer prices, what they do is they essentially have a massive shopping basket of 600 odd items, which they use, they look every month at the price and they see if it's gone up or down and how much and so on and that's where we get the consumer price index from. But two weeks ago, as you say, they, they, they chucked the Swiss roll. One of the things that they chucked out of the, the, the shopping basket was the Swiss roll. Shocking. So I, I asked them why they did that. They say, And they said, basically, it's a huge amount of research goes into this shopping basket. Uh, and, and a big thing is the household budget survey, which they do every couple of years. And that's where they ask households, tell us what you're buying, how much you're spending, what is and isn't going in the shopping basket. And from that, they then calculate, well, what does the average household tend to buy? What are the most popular products? And according to their most recent survey, which started in the summer of last, year, uh, fewer households are, are buying a Swiss roll and so it no longer has a place in the typical uh, shopping basket and so they're no longer counting it. Graeme, you were shocked I'd say to hear this, were you? Dreadful news. <laughs> you know me, I love old-fashioned baking um, and that's what I've become known for. So when I heard it about the Swiss roll, I was, I was a bit disappointed. Now I don't sell them in my shop. Don't you? But I was disappointed here that it was gone. Why don't you sell them? It. My, personally, I think you need to eat a Swiss roll really, really fresh. Like, it's just so tasty. Like, it's three simple ingredients to make the sponge. And it's just so good when it's fresh with the jam and dusting of icing sugar on top. Oh, it's just so beautiful. Mm, but it has to be eaten straight away. I think so. Like, it la- it will last for a day or two. I actually remember last week we were making in the kitchen. I made a rhubarb one. I brought it home and had it with hot custard. Like the Delicious. following day and it was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It was still absolutely fine. No, but I am going to bring uh, Swiss rolls to my shop this weekend. Okay, you've, yeah. you've seen the light, you see. That's, that's what happened. So Adam, did you have a look back then at the history of the Swiss roll? Yeah, and it goes way, way back, which first than I realised, uh, references to the Swiss roll dating back all the way to the middle 1800s. So a really traditional cake. Some suggestions, the first recorded reference to the term Swiss roll was in a, a Birmingham newspaper ad in 1856. Uh, the wording suggesting that the cake had been made in that particular bakery 
bakery since the 1840s at least. So so really goes way back. It's not clear though where the name came from. It doesn't actually seem to be a Swiss cake. It doesn't seem to have come from Switzerland. Uh, it may be somewhere like Austria or, or, or Germany or somewhere Central Europe. Uh, there's lots of kind of, as Graham will probably be able to tell in more detail, there's lots of rolled cakes that, that go back in the in, in mainland Europe, the likes of the, the U-log we mentioned, as, which is basically a, a dressed up Swiss roll. Uh, that goes back to the 18th and 19th century. So a lot of history there. I'm very popular in Ireland for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. I'm really distracted as you're talking because we have <laughs> Swiss rolls here that Graham has brought in and they just smell absolutely <laughs> divine. So I challenged you then to go out and learn how to make a Swiss roll. Yeah. So you went on a, a very long journey on yeah, this Yeah, well, I mean, you, you have to put the work in it to make sure you get this. <laughs> tough right, work, you know? tough yeah, work. Tough work, a lot of research involved, which basically is eating a lot of cake. But yeah, so after last week, Tony Kane got in touch to offer his help in, in this, this campaign. He's the bakery specialist with Odlums and the president of the Irish Bakery Association. So we, we met in Supervalue in Lucan in West Dublin on Friday. Uh, they were kind enough to set aside a little bit of space in their very busy kitchen. Uh, Friday was their busiest day. Uh, and a lot of very experienced bakers in there with a lot of fond memories of the, the Swiss roll. So to give you a taste of that, we can have a clip now. Uh, we'll start hearing from Tony Kane from Odlums. He was chatting to one of the, the Supervalue bakers, John King, both of whom had previously worked in bakeries in, in Superquin way back in the, the Fergal Quinn days. And, and later in the clip, you'll hear another baker who also has some fond memories, Dave Byrne. Well, many, many years ago, I used to make about 120 of them. A day in my farm there. And it was um, a so Bailey's Swiss roll. So you add a drop of Bailey's to it. Right, okay, yeah. Mix it up with the fresh cream and yeah. a little bit of kiwi on top. And you, you couldn't sell enough. Sounds really nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. It really makes me hungry now, actually. You know, even remember the chocolate Swiss rolls. Yeah, they the, used to the be so popular. Yeah. Yeah. We, grew, we grew up on some, most of them. You know what I mean? Chocolate butter cream, yeah. chocolate all over them. You'd yeah. cut them in. Remember that? That's right, yeah. yeah would you have seen a difference in terms of the amount you would make or that people want something maybe they don't see it as fancy they want something a bit fancier probably have gone down a little bit but still it's a shame because uh, you know it's a lovely a lovely product and it's you know it's a bit of jam and sugar perfect I'm going to show you down here you see this man over here Dave said to me this morning I, I met my wife Linda while rolling a Swiss roll in John Simoni's I was doing the brown and she showed me what to do and I asked her out straight into Bellamy's that night for a drink. <laughs> Long live the Swiss roll. <laughs> See what can happen when you're rolling a Swiss roll. It's magic of the Swiss roll. <laughs> now, um, they're trying to, that group of people you spoke to, including Dave, they're trying to rekindle our love of the Swiss, Swiss roll. They're my gang. They're really upset about this. They, they are, yeah. They're really shocked with it. And, and yeah, we were chatting about the reasons why the Swiss roll might have gone out of favour. Maybe it, it's seen as old-fashioned. It's seen as a, as a cheap cake, maybe, as if that's a bad thing. But at the same time, it is a really tasty cake, especially when it's freshly made. As I discovered on Friday, the one you gave me, the package one, I'll, I'll admit that that was nice as well. Maybe I just have lower standards. But the, a fresh cake, really, really <laughs> nice. Is that You can't go wrong with the sugar, a bit of jam. So in Super Value Luke and they've launched a campaign called SOS, Save Our Swiss Rolls, uh, to try and reinvent the cake for, for a modern uh, uh, consumer. So here's uh, bakery manager Colin Meehan, who explained to me exactly what they're trying to do. Yeah, well, we're all about SOS. We're very proud of what we do here. We're a traditional bakery. We've been doing what we do now for 30 years. Swiss Rolls actually were in our original range, uh, going back to when we were Super Quinn. In some ways that, that, that it's gone off this index as a result of the fact that maybe it was old-fashioned. Trends are, are pointing towards people looking to see, you know, to, to, to feel that nostalgic feeling that they had 
as a kid, maybe when the bread man came on a Saturday evening with a Swiss roll for the family. Mm. Uh, I know that was the case in my house. That was a day that we look back and look forward to. So my feeling is that you have touched on something here. They have lost a bit of favour in, in the, the general consumer because uh, they'd be seen as a, a cheap yeah, I think probably the majority of sales in the past would have been for an ambient version of your Swiss roll. I suppose we've souped that up now and made it a little bit more luxurious uh, and more maybe a reflection of modern taste as well. Um, so I'd like to think that we've taken a lot of what we did in the past in terms of how we make it. It's a very simple product to make. Um, but jazz it up to reflect, I suppose, buying taste and customer preferences. This morning we've made some Swiss rolls that have lemon through it. We have some raspberry through it. We've got a black forest version. Um, and Tony, I think you were looking yeah, at another one. Winter, we were going to do a winterberry one. That's and right. We were, we were thinking, it's endless. Like we were saying, we, we do a brandy buttercream with hazelnut. You know, so you can jizz it up and 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 yeah, read it the words. Do is we're going to try maybe two or three here and see what see what our customers think. Yeah. We'll never go far wrong if we if we if we follow our customers and listen to our customers. I'll 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 taste test for them if they want. There's no problem there. <laughs> uh, Graham, do cakes fall out of favour? It's just really interesting to hear that the trends there mightn't suit. They the do. Swiss like roll. one of the things Adam challenged me to come up with a more modern version of the Swiss roll, which I've done here today, and they, they do. People like a Swiss roll. If you just say sponge and jam it's like it is old fashioned it is a little bit boring so like what I've done for more, the modern version to yeah. try and modernise it I've gone with the traditional flavour because nostalgia is huge at the moment and that nostalgic flavours this is tea brown bread and marmalade this Swiss uh-huh. roll so the Swiss roll is a, and I've thrown in loads of like current words and trendy words so it's a brown sugar and Barry's tea Swiss roll with a blood orange jam inside a mascarpone on top and then we have some more like toasted brown bread little white chocolate with some Barry's tea in it so I've taken like really traditional flavours but given it a really modern twist and wow. I think that's where the future is for a cake like this OK we won't blame you for not using Lion's tea now <laughs> you know there's a big debate about that so Adam how did you get on making your own? Yeah well well, Tony there Tony Kane gave me lots of really good pointers and a, and a recipe to work off as well his recipe I should say is slightly different from, from Graham's recipe uh, which I think is the hallmark of a classic kind of food that there's always going to be slight variations and slight tweaks on, on how to do it but the essence of it is the same it is a very uh, a very simple uh, recipe and, and out in Lucan I, they also had a sponge ready for me to kind of do a dry run which went mm. okay I'll say it went okay <laughs> uh, so then after that I went to Graham's uh, kitchen to try and, and, and make one from scratch and it is a really simple recipe. It's like three ingredients. And the key that, that I discovered was it's about whipping it for a very, very long time, getting lots of air into yeah. the into the, the, the uh, into the sponge. Is that any uh, different to, to any other cake though, Graham? So it's a Genovese sponge. So it's literally eggs, sugar and flour. That's all that's in it. There's yeah. no fat in it. So you need to whip your eggs and sugar for a really long time to make them really, really light and fluffy. And then you're folding in your flour and that's it. Mm-hmm. Has to be mm-hmm. really so it's a bit great. of technical skill. Well, I, I wouldn't say technical, more patience probably than okay. anything. Or I'd be the type. I'd be the type. It's one of these ones. It's just a little bit of practice. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's so easy. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd be the type that you know when you bake, it's like I'll put it on for two or three minutes. That's enough, you know, and take it and not not whip it for long enough. But it is, it's just literally leave it there standing for, uh, for for long enough. So we did that. We got it into the oven. Uh, uh, got the tea towel and the sugar, dusted baking paper ready, and then then came the moment of truth. If you wanted to fill this with jam and cream, okay. Mm-hmm. You literally, you fold this piece of paper here in, so you're unfolding a little bit of the greaseproof paper that I have the caster sugar sprinkled on, uh-huh. into the centre, and I'm going to use a tea towel to roll up the Swiss roll. Okay. Okay, 
but we're going to just do a jam version. So we can so just go straight, straight on. We are going straight on with 200 grams of jam, right? I've got raspberry jam here, right into the middle. So we're roll. You're going to fold it in, uh-huh. and then literally either use the paper uh-huh. or the tea towel to actually just roll it up. All right, I'll try with the tea towel. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Keep going. Bring it all the way to the end. Perfect. Now, at that stage, you can let it fall back. Move your Swiss roll into the center. Okay. And then just roll it right over on itself. Okay. That's it. Okay. Throw the tea towel back over it. And we're leaving it like that for about 15, 20 minutes to cool. Just let it cool down there. That's it, yeah. That's it done? Yeah. I didn't manage to to not have a crack. We got a crack. We got a crack. It was a crack. It, you know, it is probably my fault because I was showing Adam, if you if you want to fill your Swiss roll with cream afterwards you need to let it cool first so you roll it up in like the paper going through the middle of does that make sense so you're rolling yes. the paper on itself and letting it cool rolled up but then i unrolled it because i wanted to put jam into it. if you're making it with jam you can put the jam straight in roll it up and that's it mm-hmm. so we actually rolled it twice so yeah. that's why there was a bit of a crack I, I, it. there was also a bit more time because you were showing me how to do it as well <laughs> so it, it cooled down a bit which probably made it so a bit is harder. is the best thing to do to do to roll it while it's warm oh yeah you are rolling it while it's warm so as soon as it comes out of the oven turn it the top of it face down onto a sheet of grease with paper that has been sprinkled with some caster sugar and then peel off your back and then just roll it up straight away mm-hmm. and so that's you either you put jam it. on and roll it up or if you want to fill it with cream you roll it up with no jam in it. Yeah, it sounds scary now to me. It really does. <laughs> it tastes, even with the crack, it still tastes good. Yeah. Know? So we, that's the main thing. The end yeah. result still tastes good. Kate in uh, Claire, who's texted us, says that she only uses Swiss roll as the base for trifles instead of trifle sponges. She said that it's a game changer. Yeah, I've heard it. It is, yeah. Like, again, in my book, Bake, I use my Swiss roll recipe to make my trifle. And it ah. is, it is beautiful. And it looks so pretty around the, the trifle jar. Again, Ellen says the same thing. Uh, uses at the bottom layer for trifle topped with fruit, jelly, custard and whipped cream. Simply delicious. Because you have that additional sweetness then of the jam in there. Yeah, that's, that's a really good. Idea. good. Uh, jam Swiss roll with bananas and custard. What a dessert that was. We couldn't get home from school quick enough for it. That's a good idea. Because if your Swiss roll is a bit dry, as you were saying, the custard over it's going to solve Oh, yeah, problem. it is. Like, and as I, I made it last week with, um, I had rhubarb jam and I just sieved a little bit of ground ginger into the flour. And I just, it was a gorgeous rhubarb and oh, ginger. One ones, yeah, yeah, one of the ones we had on Friday. And I just had it with some custard on Saturday. It was so good. It was just so wholesome and <laughs> cosy. Yeah. <laughs> Swiss roll is cosy, actually. That's a good word for it. So, so you heard um, the lads there in, in Adam's clip talking about modernising it. You know, you've had your attempt there, which we're all going to try after the programme. <laughs> You're not going home with that, Graham. <laughs> I mean, do you think that that's the secret to getting it back on the agenda? Right. Well, first of all, I think if there's cream in it, it's a roulade. It's not a Swiss roll. Okay. I think jam, a Swiss roll is jam. And that's as far as I'm concerned. That's all that's in a Swiss roll. We were talking about this the other day. So all Swiss rolls are roulades. Not all roulades are Swiss rolls. <laughs> okay. So a Swiss roll, it's, roulade is something that is rolled up. So if it's rolled up with jam and cream, I think it's roulade. If if it's just jam, I think it's a Swiss roll. Okay. Yeah. So you can't really modernise it then is what you're saying because it becomes something else. Well, you can modernise the flavour of it. 
like what I've done here with this one. Yeah, as in like with tea in it or like some like making it a brown sugar sponge Mm -hmm. is modernizing it. Making that filling a little bit different is modernizing it. Um, So, yeah, I think you can modernize it. So, Adam, you'll have to go back now with all of your research to the CSO people and try and convince them. Campaign, yeah. I also think as well, we spoke about the fact, you know, Colin the Caterpillar is is a Swiss roll type cake. The U-Log is a Swiss roll type. I I saw in Super Value as well, there was, I think it was an Easter roll that they had. Now, these are all pre-packaged ones, but they're all just Swiss rolls, really. So maybe, you know, we need to cast the net a bit wider and say, look, these should all be counted as Swiss rolls. They're still all very popular cakes as well. We'll get them back in the CSO basket that way. I I think so. So the Odlum's recipe, you're going to put the up that uh, online for us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, we have, have a sheet there and it has some, some nice tips as well in terms of, of how to uh, how to actually try Rolling and be successful up. hopefully without a crack as and well. And Graham, your recipe, we can get hold yeah, of that we've as got, well. And actually, do you know what I'll do? I'll share the um, trifle recipe as well because people are talking about Swiss roll Absolutely. And Mm, sounds delicious. That was RTE's Adam Maguire and Graham Herterich from the bakery in Rialto on Today with Claire Byrne. A recurring topic on the Oliver Callan show this week has been school avoidance and Damien White, a former primary school principal and education welfare officer with Tusla, shared his advice and experience. I don't have a magic bullet and no parent or grandparent is immune from um, having a child in their vicinity who will have a difficulty like uh, Kerry was talking about yesterday. Kerry was magnificent yesterday. Um, Her thoroughness, her comprehensiveness in in laying it all out before. And Mm. but she had hope at the end. And the other thing I noticed that in the last month, I was going to say three people. Now I'm actually going to say four. I've listened to three people. Uh, One was the uh, on the the business program. she came from South Africa, I think. And Coming then through the different other routes lady through, from through education. Tala, yeah. I think, who's in Aintus. Mm. Can I ask I you, Damien, because program. a lot of people were, were contacting us particularly about Tuzla and they're quite scared of Tuzla, particularly because the school has to call them in after the, someone is missing for 20 days from, from the classroom. Your message is don't be afraid of Tuzla, is that correct? I am. I, I, I would say that Tuzla, Tuzla is... Is on the side of the parent. Is on the side of the child. Actually, you know, mm. they want the child to succeed in education. Now, there are problems, and Tusla uh, works with uh, children and parents and schools. But the twenty-day thing actually came up quite a lot. Uh, I noticed, and I would say I would be more relaxed about it if t- if it's twenty days. We have a very high attendance rate in this country, over ninety yeah. percent. Uh, twenty days. Is would be above average, and by and large, it, for most circumstances, this probably could be a family bereavement. There could be medical issues, things like that, that would have caused it. Um, but we say if twenty days happened in the month of September, then there'd be a problem. You know, that's sort of yeah. compressed. But the and rule is, I suppose, if they're, if they're, you know, the school is notified if, if they feel there's reasons for the absence other than that or it's unexplained 20 days yes. in school year. People are frightened of, of their, currently their child is refusing or avoiding school, that the parents will be prosecuted. Do you have any reassurance for them? I would say there isn't a hope in hell that they will be going to court with really? a parent listening to Kerry yesterday. You could, uh, Kelly, Kerry has uh, absolutely no reason or anybody like her where the parent is trying their best. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent. 
I see what she's doing. I see um, the, 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 the pressure she's under trying to do her best. Irrespective of Tusla and court, she wants her child to succeed. She wants her child to be happy. Yeah. Every parent wants that. More so she's following the law entirely. There's no, yeah, you, yeah. Don't, you don't prosecute. The law is way out in the left field, so it is, right. for 95, 99, 95%, I'd say, of the cases. But, you know, if, if parents ignore it and ignore the interventions and try and try and avoid the supports and things like that, they can go to court and occasionally you see those cases in court, but they are relatively rare. Really? So, they are. so the 20 days, I would say, is I wouldn't be overly concerned from my perspective um, I would obviously ask questions, but I would uh, come to a common sense conclusion that parents are trying their best. Yeah. And uh, so they're, they're doing everything. Yeah, if they're doing everything they can to get them to school, Absolutely. there's going to be no Absolutely. prosecution there. There's um, no reason on earth. Now, I, I was, uh, what I would uh, say to parents, and I don't have a, a magic bullet, but if you're in the situation and you have a child not going to school um school refusal, school avoidance, whatever way you want to express it. The best, the thing to do is to keep structure on the child's life at home. Right. Uh, uh, teenagers especially tend to drift into what I call summer holidays mode, getting up late in the day and get, uh, staying up late at night. Um, there's a book called Flagging Screenagers by um, Harry Barry and Enda Murphy, which is actually a fantastic reading about uh, the the way the brain of the adolescent develops. And at that stage in life, there is a huge reorganization of the brain that goes on. There is a reason that it happens usually in what I would call the junior cert cycle, and that the children will have been okay in the primary school and suddenly coming into that, it seems to spiral. The brain is developing. It doesn't happen to every child, but it does happen to some. Mm-hmm. And that book, Flagging Screenagers, I found um, uh, uh, gave a great explanation. Now, keep a structure, if possible, at home. Uh, make sure to get up out of bed. Is that is, what's the, what are the warning what, signs for? Uh, what are the early warning signs, I suppose, of of the teenagers who eventually end up avoiding school? I would say it starts with straightforward reluctance, you know, to get up in the morning. Yeah. Are they staying up late at night on the phone? Is the an electronic curfew in the, the house? You, if your child is staying up late, there's a problem developing for the obvious reason. They're going to be tired at 8 o'clock in the morning when they're asked to get out of bed. You know, that's a warning sign. I would say... In the primary schools, sometimes there is a warning um, in that there's a higher absence rate for your child than other children in that school. Uh, when I looked back on statistics or on child attendance in some of the cases that were a school refusal in my time, I could see that they had a pattern of absences that was higher than was the normal for the school. It wasn't excessive, but it was there, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, you're worried the about the. Thing, you're worried about children who retreat to their bedrooms. Oh, absolutely! They become lodgers in the house, right. and they don't even pay. You know. Now, a lot of parents listening would say, "Here for me, go back up to the room." I think a lot of parents, teenagers, would say that's nearly all of them. 
a lot of I think a lot of parents listening would say nearly all of a lot of teenagers become lodgers in the house. They retreat to the room well, and they I don't. I think this is where the parents have to assert house rules. Right. But I would think those house rules, if the child is there, it's going to be very difficult to do. Then your best bet is to assert those rules, house rules of uh, coming to meals, having a family time, open communication. Uh, having a family meal, no um, screens open while the meal is going on, that everybody is talking to everybody. That needs to start a few years earlier because uh, starting in the middle of a crisis is very, very difficult. Very difficult. And I just want to get one more message from because I think you are, are, are keen to point out to people that not doing the junior cert isn't the end of the world. Absolutely. Keep education going at home. I would always, I would say the junior cert and leaving cert are not obligatory exams. Now, saying that, there's an obvious caveat I would attach immediately. The junior cert um, is a good standard, you know, to see how well the child is working and how well they can handle the the, the, the stress of it. Because you're yeah. going to meet stress late in life. You're going to be going for a job interview or something like that. And uh, the junior cert, however, is the standard by which, um, and the leaving cert, obviously, by which um, if you're looking, going job interview later on, the last few results, not to see, although obviously if you did a fantastic one, it's great. Yeah. But the junior Not the end of the world if you don't have the, you can still no, do the leaving cert the without the, world. the, yeah, you can still do um, the leaving cert without the junior cert. Isn't that the important? Absolutely. That's an important it word. is possible. Yeah. But the problem can arise post junior cert in placing you as they go into the leaving cert cycle um, what subjects are you good at how good are you at them and so on and so forth that can be a problem for the school but I don't think it should be that much they obviously have your record of your attendance your effort your work in the previous years but also another thing in here parental expectation parents put a lot of pressure on for junior cert and leaving cert yeah now some for the reason I'm just after outlining and perfectly legitimately. But sometimes um, there are other alternatives. Mm. Uh, lately, the um we should also the apprenticeships are very good very and of course there are changes to leaving start if I have time I will talk about that actually but we have to go to a break but Damien White thank you so much for, for talking to us there don't be afraid of Tuzla is your message and uh, you've plenty Absolutely. of experience in that area thanks Damien uh, good luck to you for the day if there's a problem talk to the school talk to the school thanks a million Damien White, former school principal and education welfare officer with Tusla on The Oliver Callan Show. Ninety percent of people who drive electric cars say they are cheaper to run than fossil fueled vehicles. That's according to a new study done by Dun Deal. And on Morning Ireland, motoring editor with the Sunday Independent, Geraldine Herbert, told Kiam McCormack why this is the case. Yeah, definitely they are at the moment. I mean, the wholesale price of electricity has been reducing, so EV drivers are seeing those benefits with cheaper runner, running costs. Plus, at the moment, petrol and diesel prices are on the rise. Now, this is the first time in about four months. So that gap between running a petrol and diesel car versus an EV is definitely increasing. It's a bigger gap, but is there any kind of figures showing how much cheaper it is? It really depends on where you're charging. If you're charging on at home, and we know 80% of charging is done at home, and you're on a smart meter, there's substantial savings to be made. If you're charging on the public charging infrastructure, then the gap is narrower because it's much more expensive. But most people would have negotiated a smart meter and a, you know, a night rate and would be benefiting a lot. From this report, are we 
noting now that maybe people are seeing the benefits of moving from diesel and petrol to charging their cars at home and making massive savings. No, there's no doubt about that. There are savings to be made and we see that. I mean, the numbers of EVs are, are on the rise that are, that are being bought and definitely people are moving towards that. And I think cost is one of the factors, but there are, of course, other factors. There are other elements in this research, range and anxiety, you know, that terrible feeling uh, when you're in a car just wondering, have you enough fuel uh, to get to your final destination? That pops up uh, as a factor in this report. So what do we find out about range anxiety? Yeah, it's interesting. The survey distinguishes between range anxiety and concern over the charging infrastructure. But I think they're one in the same, really. And I think a lot of this has to do with the charging infrastructure. The charging infrastructure at the moment, it really depends on where you're travelling and, you know, what time you're travelling at. Better, this, some areas in the country are better served than others. On bank holiday weekends or at holiday time where demand is greater, it is going to be more of a challenge. It is improving, but as I said, you know, it will take a while before it will be the same in all areas. We do know that the government is investing £100 million, um, between now and the end of 2025 in the public charging infrastructure. And as part of that, a pool of high-powered chargers at every 60 kilometres on the motorway will be installed. And I think that will make a huge difference for buyers and would-be buyers. Now, we see also in this that 70% of EV drivers plan to stay electric. So that means that 30% aren't. So do Irish motorists have an appetite to stay with electric vehicles to change from fossil fueled cars? I think they do, but I think the charging infrastructure is an issue and maybe people are, you know, who may not be suited to EVs are buying. And I think that there's a, there's a case there to be made that really they have to be sold to the right people. You know, they're not going to suit everybody at the moment. If you're a very high mileage user and you're travelling very, you know, very erratically and you can't plan your routes, then you may not be the right person for an EV. So I think there's an issue there about just the right people buying EVs at the moment. Finally, when we look at the results of this research, this report, is the government's target to have 950,000 EVs on Irish roads by 2030 achievable? achievable? Um, I think most people would admit it was always a very ambitious target. I think there's no doubt sales of EVs are still rising, but growth is slowing and a slower uptake of EVs could compromise those ambitious targets. But we've yet to see. I mean, I think most people agree that there'll be a much faster growth rate in the second half of the decade. So I think it's too early to say that those targets are not achievable. I think they're going to be very ambitious, though. So. Motoring editor with the Sunday Independent, Geraldine Herbert, chatting to Kean McCormack on Morning Ireland. Later, Claire Byrne was discussing songs that deal with heartbreak and she was joined by Simon Maher, founder of 8radio.com. Um, so when it comes to these types of songs, the heartbreak songs, do you like a bit of sadness in I your playlist? I absolutely love it, Claire. I love to wallow in misery. You've got people who have the playlist is that when I'm feeling sad, I'm going to put on my upbeat, happy, I'm going to jump around the place playlist. I want to wallow. You know, given the choice, I will stand in front of the mirror crying listening to these songs and it's amazingly cathartic for me. So I love it and I've got a great playlist on my on my Spotify which is called Misery and it's chock full of these You've songs. You've got a Misery playlist? I have a Misery playlist and it is one of my favourites. Yeah. Okay, maybe we should all have uh, one of <laughs> I'll those. share it with you. <laughs> <laughs> Do. So we've already heard Sinead O'Connor there. We've another Irish singer now who released a really great song on Heartbreak. Let's have a listen. To think that only yesterday 
looking forward to wouldn't do the role I was about to play But as if to knock me down Reality came around And without so much as a mere touch Cut me into little pieces Leaving me to doubt Talk about God in his mercy If he really does exist Why did he Gilbert O'Sullivan there. I remember at home now when we were kids, we'd tease each other with that song. Yeah. You know, it was like used to fam- familial bullying. Oh yeah, oh absolutely, as it should be. But he was a really, really good songwriter. And he's one of the people who's able to couch that misery, that sadness, that heartbreak, but in such beautiful melodies and using such beautiful words as well. That's about being jilted at the altar, you know, but he just does it so nicely. Fits the genre perfectly. Oh, perfect, absolutely perfect. So does that make it onto your misery playlist? It it would it would make it on? I have to say, yeah. Like there, there's uh, he is one of the people who gets on. There's kind of two, I suppose, schools of the playlist. One is the stuff that sounds utterly miserable and is miserable. So that'll be all of indie music and all of country music. And then outside of that, then there's the more the popular stuff. Some of which sounds utterly miserable, but some of which is like Gilbert O'Sullivan and just sounds lovely. But you know yourself that if you're walking along with the dog and the headphones on, you know that he's crying inside, yes. writing and singing. So if this you song. pay attention to the lyrics you know that this is a very sad song if you're just listening to the melody you'll be grand exactly Um, his particular style of songwriting I mean was this an unusual move for him to write this song this you know such a sad heartbreaking he would would have been known initially as the little and anybody who's ever seen pictures of Gilbert Sullivan in the early 70s he wore sort of green and he'd wear a little tweed jacket and he had the, the flat cap and all that stuff going on so he was seen as being a very happy chap but you didn't have to dig very far into a Gilbert Sullivan album to find the sadness mm-hmm. it wasn't far it wasn't ever far away and as I say he does it very very well Is there an era a golden era of heartbreak songs? I was thinking about this as to whether there was and I'm not sure I think it's quite timeless like we tend to a lot of the songs that we have now so the likes like uh, We're Never Ever Ever Getting Back Together that sort of stuff they're kind of brief breakup songs but I'm going to move on Yeah Taylor but, Swift Yeah absolutely but Flowers Miley Cyrus Look, Yeah so yeah. There's, there's loads that are about you know they're about heartbreak but they tend to be that bit more transient whereas probably in the 70s and the 80s and then as they were indie music in particular into the 90s it was this is misery and I'm not coming back from this mm-hmm. I'm going to be sad forever You I'm listening to a country music playlist at the moment <laughs> and they are just brilliant at the breakup songs aren't oh, they? they? Love They're it. hilarious. Yeah, oh they love it. They love it. But And then I, the dog died. Also. Yeah. <laughs> but there's probably a little bit more I would like to think maybe there's a bit more satire and irony when it comes to country music in this because they must know themselves yeah. that the entire genre is built on breakups, pickup trucks and dead dogs. Yeah, well the one, you know, so yeah, the, the one I was something. listening to yesterday, I think the, the the chorus of it was and I never have to see my ex mother in law again and that was his most joyful <laughs> takeaway from the ending of the relationship. You mentioned the seventies there. Let's stick with the seventies. Here's a woman who excelled at the love song. There'll be good times again for me and you. But we just can't stay together, don't you feel it too? Still I'm glad for what we had And how I once loved you But it's too late, baby, now It's too 
it's just sad now it is Carol realises they probably both still like each other a lot but it's just gone it's gone and that's it's gone and it's not coming back and I think that's the key to heartbreak is that it's not that this is a temporary this isn't a bump in the road this is something that's happened and it's just it's, yeah, yeah it's going to take me a long time to get over any of this so the best thing I can do for myself and for anybody else who's in this situation is write a song about it and she writes them particularly well we don't know what relationship she was talking about there no we? no she was married to James Taylor at one stage like you know so you can imagine the dinner table must have been gas crack some days <laughs> like you know but I think there was he probably had ho- more moments of joy musically at least you know whereas mm. you know a lot a lot that particularly lives on the likes of Tapestry is bleak but again beautifully done but she's not writing about a summer romance or a teen thing. Like that's oh, no. a that's yeah. off the back of a long relationship yeah. that was very important to both people. Yeah. Oh, these are like the word lives are intertwined. Everything has happened here. You know, this mm. that it's this is all long term stuff. So a listener suggests Bonnie Raitt. I can't make you love me if you don't. Yeah. Again, it's oh. sort of on the same yeah, yeah. theme, isn't it? Would you yeah. say? Yeah. Oh yeah. And it has to be hopeless. You know, <laughs> but it does. It can't just be like you know. Is that maybe this will? And even when you're listening to the songs where people are pleading, mm-hmm. you know, and you know that, you know what the answer is going to be and you know you want to say, give it up, it's never, ever, ever, as Taylor would say, it's never, ever going to happen. But you know that it isn't and that element of hopelessness is really important. So we're listening to these songs and we want the songwriter and the artist to sort of confirm how we're feeling. Yeah. Agree with me. I feel terrible, and this song is going to reinforce. Oh, that. absolutely! I need something to back up how I'm feeling. Yeah, you know, and the singer uh, has to be able to give. Uh, they have to take possession of it as well. So you have to believe that even if they're not, and somebody like Christy Moore, who's a, an amazing at this, is taking even somebody else's story, you know, and making it something that I can absolutely believe and I can absolutely identify with this, mm-hmm. and it almost becomes a conversation. It's almost an interaction at that stage. So when we're talking about Karen. Carol King, Gilbert O'Sullivan, Bonnie Raitt. That's the key, isn't it? That's the that's what makes those songs go the distance. Oh, and they have to be. They have to be. If you don't believe it, if it just feels like it's it's performative, there's no point to it. It's like, oh, that's nice, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're not listening to one of these songs because it's nice. You're listening to one of these songs because it's in your heart. Yeah, because you listen to Carol King there and you hear the intensity, you hear the emotion. And the first thing I want to know is, oh, who's she writing yeah, about? Yeah. Not Absolutely. that she's performing something that somebody else has put together for her. Yeah, this, I this is her story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we go back to the 60s now. Oh, I'm happy. Here's your next pick, Simon. Yesterday Love was such an easy game to play I need a place to hide away Oh, I believe in yesterday Why she had to go I don't know, she wouldn't say I said something wrong Now I long for yesterday Yesterday Love was such an easy game It's from 1965, The Beatles with Yesterday. Heartbreaking. Mm. And then we find out that it was Paul McCartney writing about his mother. Absolutely. And this probably one of the most covered songs ever. But there should be at least something in legislation that says you're not allowed cover yesterday. You know, you just can't. And even before we ever knew that it was actually about his mum, you know, that idea that anybody can come along and can take this song. So many people have tried and it doesn't work. But for the Beatles, 
in 65 when they were still very much in their huge pop uh, phase with screaming fans and all that stuff it was quite the change of tone for them but it was only in much more recent times that we discovered that it was about yeah it was about his mam and uh, that he had teased his mam about her accent at one stage and he felt bad about it immediately then and he had written the song about it and he says that 40 50 years later he still feels bad about it like he felt bad post post her death and he still feels bad about it in 2020 23 and that's that's the power of something and it's a heartbreak in just the same way as any breakup can be that heartbreak of knowing that you've hurt somebody I I think you know that's a lovely story but I would prefer if that was a true heartbreak song at the end of a relationship because it's just like you were saying the intensity and the emotion that's what we need to know and feel about these songs Yeah, little kind of you know row with his mother don't know if it cuts it. Does it make the list or not? It's, it's, it's staying on my list. It's, it's staying, staying on, on my list, list for now. Yes, well, yeah. on other people's list, a Kerry listener says, Annie Lennox song, No More I Love You. Oh, that's a yeah. beautiful it song. Is, no absolutely. More I Love You. It took this listener seven years to get over the girl that they loved. And 20 years later, my heart still sinks when I hear that song. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. But that's, but that's why also it is what you want. You know, is that when you get reminded of something bad, in, in my humble opinion, mm. is that you need that reminder to still make you feel bad then. Yes. OK, so you want to get back there to the feeling. Carpenter's Goodbye to Love, yeah. says another. Yeah, yeah. Making the list. So let's bring it right up to the 21st century now. And we have this one. Amazing, amazing, but could literally could sing the phone book and you'd believe mm-hmm. her, you know, and that's the thing that there's not many people have that. Now, there was, I suppose, an advantage for that song in that the story behind the song was being played out at the time because everybody knew about her relationship with Blake Fielder, uh, Civil, Civil yeah. the on off on and off again sort of partner that she had. And uh, so everybody knew what the song was about. And she was very public at the time about what the song was about. So it really had a currency to it. But then even at this remove, so 20 odd years later, people will listen to that song and they don't necessarily identify it with her relationship, but they know it's all about, yeah. It's the authenticity of it. You can't buy it. Simon Maher, founder of 8radio.com, chatting to Claire Byrne today. A new online safety contact centre operated by media regulator Commission Naman has received calls or emails from 108 people since it was launched last week. And of those contacts, seven cases have been escalated to the regulator's complaints team. As RTE's work and technology correspondent Brian O'Donovan told Brian Dobson on the News at One today. 
Um, Brian, a hundred, more than a hundred contacts, and and this line is this contact line is open not much more than a week. Yeah, so it's pretty new. It opened on Monday of last week, Brian. So I suppose open about a week and a half at this stage. And as you said, it's calls or emails from one hundred and eight people since it launched. Some of the calls were about broadcasting complaints, so they had to be redirected to another part of the organisation. Some of the queries were about the general workings of Commission Namian, which I guess is still a pretty new organisation for some people out there. Then some of the calls, Brian, were actually people complaining about a specific piece of content that they saw online and saying, well, I want to get this taken down. And Commission Namian had to explain to people, well, that's actually technically not what we do. The whole point of this is that they have to contact the platform in the first instance. But of those 108 contacts, seven cases were escalated to the regulator's complaints team as potential breaches of the obligation under this Digital Services Act, which is the new set of EU online safety rules. Now, because so many of the platforms have their European headquarters here in Ireland, Commissioner Mann does expect to be very, very busy with calls potentially from across Europe. John Evans, the Digital Services Commissioner at Commissioner Mann, told today's hearing of the Enterprise Committee that because of the uncertainty surrounding how many calls they were going to be getting, it was actually quite difficult to find an outside provider to run we its call centre. We had some centre. difficulty, I would say, contracting for that one because it was uncertain about what the volume of uh, complaints that we were going to get through. So we had prepared a, 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 a good number of agents at, at the centre who would be ready to take calls as of last Monday. So as it turns out, that the, uh, the volume uh, of, of, of contacts that we're getting is quite manageable at the moment. Um, uh, but as we turn up the volume, I think we, we, we'll, start, uh, we'll start getting more. John Evans, Digital Services Commissioner with uh, Commission Naman. Um, Brian, what powers does the Commission have under this Digital Services Act? Yeah, so just to remind people of the Digital Services Act or the DSA, it's this new set of EU online safety rules and what they do is they require online platforms to do more when it comes to policing illegal content and the spread of disinformation on their platforms. Now, as I said earlier, Ireland will play a leading role in enforcing these rules because so many of the platforms have their European headquarters here in Ireland. Commission Amian is the body, the media regulator, tasked with implementing these EU rules, the DSA. Now, at today's committee hearing, the officials stressed to the Enterprise Committee that they're not an online censor, they're not an online monitor, they're not an online policeman. You can't ring them up and say, I just saw this thing on TikTok or on X or on Facebook. I'm not happy about it. I want to get it taken down. That's not how it works. Where Commission Amian comes in is enforcing the DSA. And under these rules, the platforms have obligations when it comes to a members of the public contacting them and saying, I need to get this taken down. And if the platform hasn't followed the rules and if it's in breach, then you can see Commission Amian opening up an investigation. If it finds there's been a breach, it has powers. It can impose a fine, quite hefty fines, Brian, up to 6% of global turnover on these platforms, which could run into the millions or the billions. Repeated breaches by a platform could see them banned from doing business in the EU altogether. RTE's work and technology correspondent Brian O'Donovan on the News at One. On last night's arena, Sean Rock spoke to drag queen and HIV activist Veda about her film Pregnant with a Drag Queen. I uh, followed my friend Paul who had a visa, who won a visa lottery to San Francisco 
And he had already started doing drag there in this amazing club called The Stud. And he signed us up for a show that very day, the day that we arrived. And we performed a song called I'm in Love with a German Film Star by a band called The Passions. It's an amazing song Mm. if you ever want to listen to it. Larry Gogan's niece was the lead singer of The Passions. Um, And later on in the show, another queen performed called Steve Lady. And Steve Lady had connected the dots between like an androgynous Bowie type drag character and the 1990s kind of grunge scene. And I had never seen anything like her. And that is really when it started for me, that it went from being just this funny. Yeah, it, it, it struck me that seeing Steve Lady was the moment that Veda kicked in your yeah, <laughs> that's just after, the first kick from the baby. Absolutely, the first kick for sure, <laughs> and that's really I think what inspired me. So when I came back to Dublin, I had a, a, you know the passion mm. for drag, and we didn't have a drag community here, but luckily Panty was already here, and we already were socially friends. Mm. And Shirley Temple Bar just blossomed onto the scene yeah. that year as well, and we became friends. So the three of us came a bit of became a bit of a force together. We started doing shows together in the pod, a show called Gristle, which became really popular. Uh, we were performing at a big club called Powder Bubble and Panty was hosting the Alternative Miss Ireland and we both were Alternative Miss Ireland winners, <laughs> along with Catherine Lynch and some other fabulous yes, people yes, over the years. Although uh, you, uh, Veda was a runner-up one year, which did not please yes, them at all. Yes, in 1998 I was a runner-up. I went on to win in 1999, but in 1998, Catherine Lynch won and I came second and I guess because Veda is a kind of character, I was fully committed to the character and I threw a big hissy fit and I threw <laughs> my runners-up prize, which happened to be a golden paquette in the general direction of the judges and the judges' table. And it managed to hit the table and send the drinks flying everywhere. Um, the legend is that I threw it at Louis Walsh, but I did not, of course, throw it at anyone person, in particular. Yeah, yeah just in the general <laughs> just direction. Just the general direction of the bad judgments. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, 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 the nature of the film, the film being called Pregnant with a Dragon, the nature of the film is it's, it's as if Veda is on a stool being interviewed in one of these kind of Jerry Springer type of talk shows that's that's what's going on here where did that idea come in as a way of I suppose showing us this, it's your story that we're seeing on screen uh-huh. well Colin initially Colin, who is Colin Brady uh, who is the director and who wrote the script he wrote it from my own mouth from a series of interviews that he did with me at, at home when he first came up with the idea of making a film about me and then because he was listening to a series of interviews I think it occurred mm. to him that we could do it in an interview style and recreate all of these little stories he chose those particular events events from so many events that we had talked about and that's how the idea was born but also there was um, a history in the 1980s of queer people being brought on these mainstream chat shows and basically vilified in ways or mocked in ways so he wanted the chat show host not to be you know a a particularly appealing person or the environment to be too friendly Yeah I wondered about that because I did think I don't. I can't. I was. I was uncomfortable in some ways with the way the TV host was treating Veda, treating yeah. you on the show. Yeah. 
there was no respect. There was a kind of a, a you know kind of dirty scatological laughter about the whole situation and and not being taken seriously at all. Let's have a listen to a clip then where um, Veda is speaking to the television host, played brilliantly by Brian Quinn as the rather Brian, he's rather so slimy TV host that he's playing here. And if there are. Um, drag parents, then there must be drag children as well. We will hear an interruption in the midst of this clip. Facing now is a doubling of AIDS cases in a nine-month period, and it's ravaging those communities. As soon as AIDS came along, people started accusing me of having AIDS, and that was before I had ever even had sex. And that kind of stuff can really mess you up, so I wasn't ready to share my HIV diagnosis with anyone, and I end up keeping it a secret for a decade. I like to say that Edith Piaf had no regrets, Frank Sinatra had a few, but I was like, oh, fuck. Uh, sorry about the language there, folks. I do hold apologize. up, hold up. I want a DNA test. <laughs> DNA test. I don't think the budget stretches oh, that far here. Come on, what's wrong with that yeah, audience? Yeah. Oh. Drive it off. And your name is, please, uninvited guest. Who me? Who me? This is my beautiful drag daughter, Pixie. <laughs> so what are we talking about? Well, I was just telling these gorgeous people all about my HIV journey. Oh, good for you, but I already know that one. And that is the wonderful Pixie Woo, your drag daughter, yes. <laughs> Veda, who appears as part of the film. And... and Pixie Wu isn't the only drag artist who is there. There are wonderful moments where the checkout girl who you were kind of inspired as a young kid by a checkout yeah, girl in your yeah. local supermarket who had wonderful makeup. Uh, Miz, Miza, is it Miza? Miza, Miza well Miza plays, spotted. Spares the checkout girl and there's a teacher as well oh, in my there. Other favorite, my other favourite, one Mary of my favourite scenes. <laughs> yeah. Mary and Mary, when they recreate those scenes of us children uh, yeah. learning this song in choir and Freddie... Cornelly, who plays me as a child, is so mm. great. And they're singing a song that I wrote called Super Marche. And it just gives me chills. It, it looks exactly right and feels exactly right. And my childhood music teacher was Miss Fitzpatrick. And there's something about that particular drag <laughs> that yeah. Marion Mary is in that really nails right, that right, as right. well. And that was drag queen and HIV activist Veda on last night's Arena with Sean Rocks. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.